So today I'm going to talk about things are as they are. Well, that seems pretty obvious, but how often do we see things as they really are? And how often do we find ourselves in a state where we want to get, get away from things as they are? How often do we find ourselves in a state where we try to things have different, to have them in a way we want them to be or we expect them to be? And so we can notice that here in retreat, but also uh, we can notice that at home in our day-to-day -day life. And to begin with, I'd like to tell you the following story. It's the story of the fisherman's daughter and the monk. In a certain village on the shore of the ocean, there was a fisherman living with his family, with his wife and his daughter. And the daughter had come of age, so the father wanted to marry her to a certain young man from the neighboring village. But the daughter, she had fallen in love with another young man from the same village. And they met secretly. And as a result of their meetings, the daughter got pregnant. And first she tried to hide her pregnancy but then after a while, uh, she couldn't hide it anymore. And so to the question of her father, who was the father of that child, she didn't dare to tell the truth. So she lied and said that the father of her child was the monk from the monastery a little bit outside the village. And so after Several months had passed after the daughter had given birth to the child. The father took the little child, went out to the monastery where he found the monk sweeping uh, in the courtyard. The father went up to the monk and just told him, you are the father of this child, so it's your duty to take care of the child and bring this child up. The monk only said, all right, took the child. And so several years passed, and of course the daughter had guilty conscience, and finally she couldn't stand it anymore. And so she went to her father and told him that she told him a lie, that the father of the child was not the monk, but that young man from the village. So after that, the father went out to the monastery, went up to the monk and said, you are not the father of this child, so give it back to me. The monk said, all right, and gave the child to the father. So if we don't resist 
uh, what is happening right now, if we don't resist to the flow of things, then it won't create any problems. If there is no resistance to what is happening, then no, no big deal. Or then at, even if it's something unpleasant happening, then with no resistance, we don't add another layer of misery or creating uh, a problem on top of that. So if we don't oppose, if we don't resist, and just can be with the situation or the thing as it is, then we have something we can work with in a skillful, uh, beneficial way. However, if there is resistance, if we oppose, if we don't accept what is, then uh, it becomes a real problem. It becomes a big thing. Things are as they are. And in the moment of their arising, we actually can't have them different. They are just the way they are. And so then, how can we be with things as they really are? Basically, we can be with them with awareness, with mindfulness. The practice of awareness or mindfulness allows to be with the thing or the object or the situation as it is. And so this happens with an attitude um, of acceptance and openness. When there is acceptance and openness, then there is also a willingness to deal with whatever uh, is coming up, with whatever is happening right now. And so then we don't make a fuss about it, how we would like to be it or how uh, it should be. And so when there is this willingness to deal with whatever comes up, then um, we are not driven by our likes or dislikes. Then we can deal with it independent of our preferences or expectations. Whatever we experience at the six sense doors are manifestations of Dhamma. Dhamma, this word, has several meanings. One is it encompasses all existing phenomena whatever exists. Dhamma also means the law, the law of nature, the universal law. And because the Buddha's teaching aim at seeing things as they really are, or to understand the natural laws that are working in this universe, and with that also in ourselves, his teaching has become known 
as the Dhamma. So Dhamma encompasses or includes everything that exists. Nothing is excluded. And so the Buddha was teaching us to see Dhammas as Dhammas or to see them as they really are. The Buddha didn't teach us to hang on to opinions or to ideas. He didn't teach us to indulge in philosophical speculation or to indulge in reflecting and analyzing. So the Buddha was pointing to the fact that we should actually uh, overcome our false ideas and wrong perceptions to get out of this uh, entanglement of ideas and opinions. So to get free from these uh, wrong notions or views. Opinions or ideas, views, how things are or how should or how they should be, or how we want them to be, are manifold. And also at the time of the Buddha, different people held different views and opinions. Just to mention one uh, opinion or view that was held at that time. At that time, um, there were the different castes, and so the Brahmins were the highest caste, the priests, and because uh, they were the highest, they thought that they were superior to the other castes. And one thing that they claimed for being superior was the fact that they said that the Brahmins are born from the mouth of Brahma. So having a quite a pure birth. And to this, at one stage, the Buddha simply uh, said that oh, actually also Brahmin women, that they get pregnant and that they give uh, birth to the children as any other women do. So that, they are cl that the claim of the Brahmins being born from the mouth of the Brahma that's just kind of an absurd uh, idea or view, which had no basic, uh, no real uh, basics. So if we can see clearly, if we can clearly see things as they are, then with that, we could lift the veil that prevents us from seeing things as they truly are. As long as we don't see very clearly, it's like having a veil that distorts our seeing, that distorts our perception of things. And this veil that distorts our clear seeing it's nothing other than the so-called defilements. In Pali, they are called kilesas. And defilements, kilesas, are things like 
greed, hatred, conceit, jealousy, and so on. There are many, many uh, of these kilesas or defilements. And in Burma, when monks, sayadaws, give talks, they often uh, talk about the 1,500 kilesas. I've actually never come across a list listing all these 1,500 kilesas. And actually in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, they speak of 84,000 uh, afflictive emotions. So whether it's 1,500 or 84,000, I think it's just a number to say the kilesas are many. And so when it is said that these kilesas are like a whale that distort our uh, perception, our clear seeing, then sometimes I think it's not only a thin whale, but actually a one meter thick concrete wall. So when it is said that we should try to see things as they really are, what will we then discover? When we look at the word vipassana, we get a clue. Pasana means to see clearly, clear seeing. And vi means various or manifold. And it is explained that it refers to the various or manifold characteristics of phenomena. And more specifically, uh, it's referring to the general characteristics of all phenomena. There are three general characteristics that can be found in every phenomena. These are the characteristics of impermanence. Things change, they are fleeting. The characteristic of dukkha, unsatisfactoriness. Uh, things, phenomena cannot give us um, real and lasting satisfaction. And the characteristic of impersonality or the non-self nature or the fact that uh, we uh, cannot control things. We don't have an absolute control over things. But by clearly seeing things as they are, we also come to see that each phenomena has its own uh, specific characteristics. And so with the practice of Vipassana meditation, mindfulness meditation, we can to come to clearly see the characteristics, the general ones and the specific ones. When we uh, mention the word meditation, many 
people who don't know much about meditation have the idea that meditation happens in a certain place, in a certain posture, mostly sitting posture. And that's kind of the idea that people have of meditation. Generally, people uh, don't consider walking as real meditation and including other activities like eating or brushing your teeth or getting dressed as part of meditation is almost unheard of. But meditation is actually not restricted to a certain posture of the body or a certain location or a certain time of the day, but it's rather an inner attitude, especially when we practice vipassana meditation. It's an inner attitude of, do we want to meet each moment with awareness and mindfulness? Are we willing to accept each experience as it is right now? Are we working towards moving away from our ideas and concepts in order to come really in contact with the actual experience? Or are we intent to train our heart and mind to get away from ideas and opinions and to lessen the defilements? And so when we uh, practice with this kind of inner attitude, then Vipassana meditation offers uh, the necessary tool for this challenge. Vipassana meditation differs from Samatha meditation or calm meditation, concentration meditation. In that kind of meditation, the goal is to attain a level of deep concentration where the mind is focused on one single object. And when that kind of deep concentration is achieved, when the mind is able to uh, rest one-pointedly on one object, that brings about a deep uh, calmness of the mind and that leads to happiness, to bliss. But that kind of meditation doesn't lead to insight or wisdom, understanding. So Samatha meditation is limited in its, uh, in its scope. Vipassana meditation, on the other hand, has the goal of developing insight, understanding and wisdom in order to uh, liberate ourselves from everything which causes dissatisfaction or misery. And so in order to develop insight, wisdom and understanding, we need to really observe and watch the different phenomena. So that means 
we do not only have one single object to focus on, but the whole range of experience can become our object of meditation, the object of our awareness or mindfulness. Although we can start with a so-called primary object, like the experience of the breath in the sitting meditation, it can be the awareness of the air going in and out at the tip of the nostrils, or it can be the rising and falling movement of the abdomen. But we don't cling to that object. We are not fixed on that object. But as soon as something else comes up, be it in the mind, be it in the body, we let go of the primary object and bring our awareness to that object that has arisen, that is in the foreground, that is distinct. And so then we pay full attention to that object, observe it, are mindful of it, uh, as long as it is there, until it has disappeared. And if nothing else is dominant or has come up, then we could go back to the primary object that can serve as an anchor to have some object uh, where, we can, where we can go back to if nothing else is dominant in the body or mind. So in Samatha meditation, where we try to establish one-pointed concentration on one object, everything else that arises is a distraction and we pull the mind back to our one chosen object. However, in Vipassana meditation, nothing is really a distraction, but whatever comes up, we simply transform into our object of meditation. Insight or understanding can arise anytime when we are really present and aware. So insights do not depend on sitting meditation or a certain uh, posture. And in the verses of the Theragatas and Therigatas, we find examples of many nuns and monks who did not uh, attain final liberation in sitting, but actually while they were engaging in uh, other things, being mindfully observing certain uh, activities or movements. For example, there was the nun called Jitta. She ordained as a young, as a young woman and she was striving for her whole life, but never got a real breakthrough. Already an old, frail woman or nun, one day she climbed up to Vulture Peak, a place where the Buddha uh, often would go as well. And climbing up to Vulture Peak was quite tiring, and when she finally uh, got to the top, 
she was exhausted and tired and so to get a rest she leaned against a rock. But still being uh, mindful, it was in that moment of leaning against the rock that she made the final breakthrough, that she became fully enlightened. Or we have another nun, uh, her name was Siha. She also lived at the time of the Buddha. She ordained as a young woman and she was constantly overwhelmed with thoughts of lust and desire. Although, although she tried to follow the Buddha's advice, she constantly there were these uh, thoughts of lust tormenting her. And in her verse in the Terigata, she says that for seven years she had not one moment of respite from these thoughts of lust and craving. So finally, after seven years, she had enough. She, she couldn't uh, stand it anymore. So she took a rope, went out into the forest. She fixed one end of the rope at the branch of a tree and then made a loop with the other end of the rope. And in the moment when she put the loop around her neck, she was freed from all her lust and craving. For her, that was the final breakthrough. So, you know, don't hope for your final breakthrough to happen necessarily in the sitting meditation. Watch out, it could come at another moment. <laughs> so we need to see things as they really are. We need to observe all dhammas, try to understand them. And the whole range of our experience can be divided into four groups. Like there are the experiences related to the body, then the experiences of feelings, with that we mean the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral aspect of an experience. Then the experiences related to the state of mind and the experiences uh, related to the mind objects. And so these four groups or categories are also referred to as the four foundations of mindfulness. You're probably uh, familiar with these four categories. And before going into uh, more details about these uh, four groups of experiences, I want to say a few, a few things about mindfulness. Mindfulness is the English translation of the Pali word sati. And mindfulness or awareness sati is an especially important factor in the process of uh, vipassana meditation. That's why it has also uh, come uh, to be known as 
mindfulness meditation. So mindfulness, sati, is the quality of the mind to be fully present, to remember to be present, to remember to be in the here and now. And when there is this presence of mind, then awareness or mindfulness doesn't lose um, the object out of sight. It always um, holds the object inside. And not losing the object out of sight means that then the mind can come face to face with the object. So then directly facing the object. And this is necessary if we want to see more clearly what the object is all about. A Vietnamese monk who was living in a center in France and who had been practicing with the late Mahasi Sayadaw, he uh, defined mindfulness in the following way. He uh, called it prendre soin du présent. That's French and it means taking care of the moment. So when we really take care of each moment, then uh, we can see more clearly. So we should develop this caring attitude to be really with each moment as it comes up, with each experience, with each object that is there right now. So, if you want to put it in other words, we can say that mindfulness is the clear and one-pointed awareness of what is happening in us and around us from moment to moment. So, mindfulness practice with Vipassana meditation is not about analyzing the object or reflecting about certain dhammas. It's not looking for the causes why a certain object has arisen and it's not uh, trying to make connections to anything we have read or heard about. Rather, it's this direct seeing or experiencing the object without any uh, preconceived idea or uh, view. So mindfulness directed to the experiences in the body. There we experience heat, cold, stiffening, tension, or movement, vibrations, hardness, softness. So these are experiences that can come up in our body. Our body, as well as any other material thing, is basically made up of the so-called four primary elements. 
These are the elements of earth, water, fire, and wind or air. And when we say our body, all the material things are made up of these four elements, so it's not real earth or real water, fire or wind, but these um, elements stand for certain qualities that we can find in these elements. So the earth element stands for the qualities of hardness and softness. The water element stands for the qualities of fluidity, cohesion. The fire element start, stands for the qualities of heat, warm, cold. So we also could call it the element of temperature. And the wind or air element stands for the qualities of movement, motion, vibration, and also support. So whatever we experience in our body is a manifestation of these four elements. So what we experience is not the earth element, but we experience hardness at times. At other times, we experience softness. Or um, let's take the example of walking meditation. As we observe the movement of the foot, obviously we notice movement as our foot is moved, as we make a step. And so when we observe the movement of our right foot, of our left foot, we experience that movement in a certain way. And on top of, mo of movement, we also can experience other things. Maybe we experience some lightness or some heaviness. We experience maybe some tingling in the foot, some warmth in the foot. We feel uh, the air, the coolness, whatever. But one of the distinct experiences is the movement of, uh, of the foot. And so initially we experience the movement as a steady, uh, smooth movement that lasts from when we lift the foot until we put the foot down on the floor. Later, when we slow down and as our practice deepens, um, we might observe the step in three parts. Observe it as the lifting of the foot, pushing it forward, dropping it down. And so then with a sharper awareness, better concentration, we can already detect uh, more details. The lifting movement um, may feel different from the pushing movement and that again may slightly feel different from the dropping movement. And as we look very carefully we see that the lifting movement somehow has a beginning, somehow at one point the movement of lifting starts and at one point that uh, lifting movement is finished and then comes 
the next part, the pushing forward. And again, it comes to an end, and then the dropping movement starts, which then comes to an end by touching the ground. And, but still we might <coughs> feel this lifting movement, pushing movement, dropping movement as a kind of a steady, smooth uh, movement. With deepening of the practice, then meditators might start to feel <coughs> the movement slightly different, not as a smooth movement, uh, going uh, through from the beginning to the end, but uh, the movement somehow feels a bit jerky, not so smooth and flowing anymore. And later on, when mindfulness becomes even sharper and the mind is really deeply concentrated on that movement, um, the movement actually starts to fall apart into smaller movement which follow each other in quick succession. And so then the lifting movement is not this one smooth movement that is happening, but it's just these tiny little uh, movements of lifting that happen one after the other uh, very, very quickly. So in this way, we are getting closer to see things as they really are, to get away from our ideas and opinions of what movement is, what we think we know about movement, um, to see behind the whale, to see it uh, in a different, more accurate way. In the beginning years, when I was practicing in Burma, in uh, the meditation center there, there was one meditator, a foreign meditator, who had been practicing for uh, some time, and he got uh, to that phase when he started to experience the movement of the foot, uh, not as a smooth uh, movement anymore, but it started to feel somewhat jerky. And because all his life long he had experienced movement as one smooth thing sort of happening, um, he thought that he was doing something wrong. And having these jerky movements, he thought he had to get it right again to make it one smooth flowing movement. But the more he tried, the worse it got. <laughs> it got even more jerky. And he really strived hard to get it right again, but he couldn't uh, get it uh, as just a smooth movement. And so then the following day he had an interview with Jamie Sayadaw and he said, Sayadaw, my meditation is not working anymore. Um, I just can't do it right anymore, so I think it's better I leave the center and go home. And then Sayadaw said, well, tell me what happened. <laughs> and so he told Sayadaw that the movements in the walking meditation started to feel so jerky and as hard as he tried to get it right and smooth again, uh, he couldn't do it anymore. And so he said, 
you know, Sayadaw, I think I'm going crazy. Therefore, it's better I leave the center and go back home. And Sayadaw said, no, no, don't go home. You know, you are not actually getting crazy, but you're actually recovering from craziness. So then, mindfulness uh, related to the experiences of feelings. The Pali word is Vedana, and with feeling, we only refer to the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral aspect of the experience. Each object, each experience is accompanied by one of these three feelings. We also could call it the effective quality of an experience or the feeling tone. And as we have come to notice in our life, in our meditation practice, it's because of these feelings that uh, the mind reacts in a certain way. Usually, uh, pleasant feelings set off a reaction of liking, wanting, holding on, grasping, or if the feeling disappears, then trying to get it back again, trying to make it happen again. Unpleasant feelings very often trigger reactions of aversion, pushing away, not wanting, uh, hatred, ill will, resistance. And with the neutral feelings, those feelings that are neither pleasant nor unpleasant, because they are not really pleasant, they are not really unpleasant, so the mind uh, usually reacts with indifference, then the mind is not really interested in that kind of experience. So because it's of these feelings that these uh, unwholesome reactions very often come about, it's so important that we are aware of our feelings, that we know whether the experience is accompanied by pleasant feeling or unpleasant feeling or a neutral feeling. So, when feeling, the feeling tone becomes distinct and obvious, then we should attend to it with awareness, with mindfulness. Be aware that a pleasant feeling has arisen observe it, and then see how it finally uh, dissolves or passes away. Or when an unpleasant feeling has come up, be aware of that. And then also notice that at one stage, sooner or later, that unpleasant feeling will also disappear again. Same thing with neutral feelings, which are a bit more difficult to detect and they are less likely uh, to happen.
especially the sensations that arise in the body, uh, especially the unpleasant ones, the painful ones, they come along with unpleasant feelings, unpleasant Vedana. But, you know, we just should try to be with whatever the experience is. Pain is just maybe sensations of heat, or throbbing, or aching, stabbing, or tension, which are all accompanied by an unpleasant feeling, feeling tone. And so if we can be fully aware of the stabbing, of the throbbing, of the pain, of the tension, being aware that it is accompanied with an unpleasant feeling, then when mindfulness is strong and concentration deep enough, it won't be much of a problem to be with that experience. It's just another experience which is happening in the body and mind. Then the third group is our experiences uh, related to the state of mind, the awareness of uh, our mind, in which state our mind is. When we say the state of mind, in Buddhism what we call mind actually has two aspects. There is consciousness itself, which is called citta in Pali, and there are uh, the mental factors accompanying the citta, and these mental factors are citta-sikas. So mind consists of citta and citta-sikas, or the consciousness itself and the accompanying mental factors. And citta, or the consciousness itself, uh, just knows the object. It's the pure uh, cognizing of an object. And it's these mental factors that help in the process of recognizing the objects. These mental factors, they have all different functions, or then they are uh, certain reactions to the object, to the experience. So citta and cetasikas always arise together. They cannot uh, arise by themselves. It's said that the citta, consciousness itself, that's pure compared to pure clear water. And the cetasikas the mental factors, they are like color or dye put into the water. So it's these mental factors that um, affect or color uh, consciousness itself in a certain way. So for example, if the mental factor of anger comes up, then the mind becomes an angry mind. So then um, we would be aware of an angry mind. When joy arises, then the mind becomes a joyful mind. So then we would be mindful of 
uh, that there is joy uh, present in the mind. When craving arises, then the mind becomes affected with craving. Or when sleepiness arises, then it becomes a sleepy mind. And then we would be aware of sleepy mind or sleepiness. Or when distraction arises, then uh, it becomes a distracted mind. And in that case, our task would be to be aware of that distracted mind, to observe it, to see how it's there, to observe it until we see it change into something else or until we see it uh, disappear. So, like an angry mind, as I said, consciousness is like Chitta is like the pure water and anger, this mental factor, uh, can be compared to red dye that is put into the water, then the water becomes red. So the pure mind then becomes an angry mind. And uh, the fourth group that's the mindfulness directed uh, to the objects of mind, or mindfulness of dhammas, or mindfulness of mind objects. And to put it simply, everything that doesn't belong to the three uh, previous categories belongs to this category. So all the other experiences can be put here. And in this group or category are included, for example, the hindrances, which you are uh, probably all familiar with. Sense desire, ill will, aversion, uh, sloth and torpor, sleepiness, restlessness, remorse, and uh, skeptical doubts. So, if any of these hindrances arises, then uh, we would be aware of that, knowing that sleepiness has arisen, observing the sleepiness, being aware of it, and uh, being with it until it disappears or until it changes into something else. Also included in this group are all the objects that enter through the six sense doors. So whatever we see, when we see something, we need to be aware of the seeing. When we hear sounds, we need to be aware of hearing. When we smell some things, we need to be mindful of smelling. When we taste uh, things, food, drink, then we need to be aware that we are tasting something. When we touch things with our body, we need to be aware of that touching. And whatever enters the mind, thoughts, mental images, emotions, whatever. So then we need to be aware of that. 
So the totality of our experiences uh, can be uh, grouped or divided into these four uh, categories. But this is just for theoretical understanding. In actual meditation practice, we actually don't need to bother to which group an experience is belonging. So whatever I've said now, forget about it. <laughs> and um, what needs to be done in practice is just to attend to each experience as it uh, really is. So don't think about the object, the experience, don't analyze it, don't uh, try to reflect about it or compare it with what you have heard before or read before. But try to establish this presence of mind to be with each moment in a caring, open, accepting uh, way. There is also no need to change anything. So if you think mm, this object is not really good for uh, uh, to be aware of, another object would uh, surely be more conducive for insight to arise. That's not the case. Anything that comes up is a perfect object for insight to arise, for wisdom uh, to develop. So don't manipulate your meditation. Don't manipulate your experiences. Rather, accept them, be with them, observe them. Things are as they are, and we need to realize that. In order to realize that, we need to be aware we need to be mindful and we need to observe whatever comes up in this body and mind. If we run away from an experience, from an object, or if we pull the mind back to our favorite uh, object, then we never come to see uh, the object as it really is. We never uh, come to see its true nature. So mindfulness is a basic quality that we need to develop, but it's not the only one. It's not um, that we just need mindfulness and then everything will fall in place. But Mindfulness is a very basic quality that we need to develop so that other qualities are developed as well or we are developing other qualities along with mindfulness, such qualities as energy and effort, patience, confidence, one-pointedness, also joy, perseverance. That's all. Um, these qualities are all needed uh, to develop insight, to develop understanding and wisdom. And so with deepening mindfulness, better concentration, we come to see th uh, things 
more accurately. So we come to see that things are fleeting, that they are ever-changing, that they are incessantly arising and passing away. So we come to see that they are impermanent. And seeing them as constantly arising and passing away, as very fleeting, we come to see that because of that, they actually can never give us real and lasting satisfaction. So we see they are uh, unsatisfactory in their nature. And the fact that things, object, phenomena constantly arise and pass away, that they cannot give us real and lasting satisfaction, uh, makes us understand that we don't have an absolute control over these things. And we see that they lack an inherently existing entity, that they lack something really solid or everlasting. So this insights or this understanding, things are changing, they are not giving satisfaction, they lack inherent uh, solidity or stability. So these insights um, are what is meant with when it said we should uh, see the three channel characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and no self or impersonality to see the three channel characteristics of anicca, dukkha and anatta. So it's not that we have to sort of uh, go and look for where is anicca, where is dukkha, where is anatta. These are just labels and words that summarize certain kinds of experiences. And as I said, these experiences come about through uh, careful, carefully being mindful of whatever comes up in this body and mind. So it needs the very direct and personal experience that um, for our insight to deepen and wisdom to arise. Let's sit quiet for a couple of minutes. <laughs> 